Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Sweet 212 Sessions. As those of you who've listened to previous episodes will know, I plan to relaunch Sweet 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes, but put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work, conducted via Skype, so apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations to people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socioeconomic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212, as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today, I'm talking to writer and journalist Natalie Ola, whose first book, Steal As Much As You Can, was published by Repeater in October 2019. It looks at how the imposition of austerity and the upper-class takeover of British arts and culture went hand-in-hand, and have been brewing throughout the new Labour period, before reaching a climax in the last 10 years. Natalie was born in Birmingham, and after periods living in Germany and the Netherlands, she's been based in London as a freelance journalist and editor since 2015. Her writing focuses on the intersection between politics and contemporary culture, with an emphasis on marginalised and working-class communities, and includes essays, fiction and reviews that have been published in Five Dials, Days, Another, ID, The Guardian, The Sunday Times, The Independent, The Times Literary Supplement and Elsewhere. Natalie, welcome to Suite 212. Thank you for having me, Juliet. It's a pleasure. You and I got to know each other canvassing together in the general election campaign of 2019, including a day traipsing around Hastings and Rye in the pouring rain and freezing cold in order to get out the vote. One of the things that got me on board with Corbyn's Labour, after a period of scepticism, was of course the 2017 election campaign, and in particular Corbyn's personal attitude to culture. You know, a lot of us remember the appearance he made at that Libertines gig at the Prenton Park Stadium in Birkenhead, where he delivered a sort of toned-down version of the concept of cultural democracy, talking about his personal love of music and football, and the idea that there was in everyone a poem or a play or a novel or a song, a piece of music that could be unlocked if only the economy were retooled in order to give people the resources to be creative. You know, this translated into quite a lot of manifesto promises in both 2017 and 2019, and was very well received. You know, I think the people in that crowd at that stadium immediately recognised the sort of the love and the kindness in that speech, in that act. And of course, immediately started chanting his his name, the famous O Jeremy Corbyn chant that made a lot of centrist journalists so angry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we talked about culture being a bit of a lacuna in the Corbyn project, I think partly because Tom Watson held the role for shadow secretary for digital culture media and sport and of course he was somebody who was in Corbyn's shadow cabinet who wasn't particularly supportive of the wider project and felt like a bit of a block on radical approaches to culture so I wonder if you could talk a bit about you know how you felt about Corbyn's personal attitude to culture the wider Corbyn project 
approach to the arts and to culture and mm-hmm. perhaps to media and you know what you think the sort of successes and and failures were so it was something that really appealed to me when i first first heard him talking about this in the first leadership campaign and it was definitely one facet of his approach to uh, society that really drew me to him as we're talking about this it's reminding me actually of a really of something quite pertinent at the moment is that as we're like living through this moment with the outbreak of coronavirus we're seeing people complain of the fact that they're really struggling to they're struggling to read they're struggling to enjoy the same kind of leisure activities that they would normally do they can't sort of engage with like films or documentaries that saying that they're finding it very very hard and it proves a point that I've always felt I think everyone would agree with that culture is something that is very difficult to a generate and b partake in when the foundations of your life are in question so when you are beset with stress and anxiety and worry it becomes very very difficult to produce or to engage with culture so we're seeing that at the moment because there's a global epidemic but that's happening sort of in a kind of socioeconomic way as well and it's very difficult to engage with culture when you are struggling to survive essentially and I think that's something that Jeremy Corbyn understood very well Um, and I think that's what he was getting at in that speech and I always found it very, I always found the sort of new labour approach to culture and leisure, both of which I'm kind of referring to in inverted commas, just fascinating because it really, in sort of like true capitalist thinking, they were sort of conceived of as entities that were sort of separate to the functioning of the economy or society, um, as opposed to a byproduct of a society that's functioning effectively. So the idea that you could just sort of like slap a few bursaries or kind of just open a few academies and some kind of training for people in underprivileged areas and that will solve the culture problem. I always found myopic and absurd and frankly ridiculous. And I think that what Corbyn stood for was something far more cohesive and therefore far more commonsensical that actually by lifting people out of poverty, redistributing wealth and giving people the sense that they matter, that their culture and their experience matters, there's every likelihood that you would see greater cultural production. And also people would have more time to engage with with culture as well. So it was that aspect of the Corbyn project that really interested me, as opposed to any of the more sort of like concerted sort of like cultural projects around Corbynism, if that makes sense. And I found it very, very interesting, the response that Corbyn received when he said that his favourite book was Ulysses, because despite the fact that Corbyn was privately educated, I think that in the eyes of the great British public, he was generally considered to be of a sort of like social stature far below that of Boris Johnson, who, when he discussed uh, reading Greek literature, was received as a kind of statesman and a strong leader. And that's the kind of stuff that our prime minister ought to be reading. And I thought it was very, very interesting that that this had happened. And it played into the worst aspects of Thatcherism, I think, of essentially saying that the project of the working class now is to pull itself out of poverty through this project of individualism as opposed to uh, social equality. So that put a huge amount of pressure on individual working class people to kind of pull themselves up. And in so doing that, it also it also castigated and condemned anything that was extraneous to the project of getting rich. So this is where I think the idea of like pretentiousness comes from. So the kind of rich working class tradition of autodidacticism of and, and also, you know, the pu- public intellectualism, public intellectual broadcasting of the kind that Stuart Hall was famous for, etc. 
suddenly became framed as sort of pretentious and indulgent because it didn't necessarily bring a direct return to capital or it didn't directly enrich the person who was partaking of it. And I think that this was like one of the worst and most damaging aspects of Thatcherism and the kind of social mobility project is it, it made a villain of intellectualism and the intellectual and by association, the artist and the artistic. And so the idea that Corbyn was pretentious because he read Ulysses, but Boris Johnson wasn't pretentious because he reads, reads ancient Greek literature, whatever it was that he claimed to have read, I can't really remember, kind of played into this idea that art and culture, intellectualism, etc., are the preserve of the wealthy and that everybody else should pull their bootstraps up and, and get on with the practical task of looking after themselves financially and socioeconomically. And that's the sort of attitude that I'm always trying to grapple with and sort of challenge through my work. Yeah, I mean, the responses to Corbyn having named Ulysses as his favourite book from the mainstream media were kind of hysterical and absurd. Mm -hmm. And we could talk all day about, you know, the media meltdown in response to pretty much every facet of Corbyn's sort of life, personality and political project. But, you know, there were people kind of challenging him to a Ulysses comprehension competition, as if trying to sort of prove that they were more intelligent than he was. And I think Corbyn annoyed them even further when he came out and said, look, you can get something out of James Joyce without having to understand every single word or every single plot twist which just annoyed people more you know this this approach to culture that you know you could democratize culture partly by just sort of widening the terms by which culture could be sort of appreciated and understood and that you didn't have to kind of be in the final year of an English literature degree and pouring through Ulysses with a fine-tooth comb to get something out of it. <laughs> that just reminds me of an interesting point made by a controversial author who on many grounds I disagree with and don't particularly like, but I think it is, he made a couple of really interesting points that I do like, um, which was Dave Foster Wallace said that there's this culture, and I am paraphrasing here because I can't remember the quote directly, but he said that there is a tendency in sort of like late capitalist neoliberal culture of having to get things of there having to be a sort of like a light bulb moment where everything falls into place and how that is a kind of capitalist construct because we don't we don't like the idea of investing something without getting a return where the experience of doing it is where you derive joy. So there should, there should be joy in the reading of something or the experience of immersing yourself in a story or a poem or listening to music or whatever. But now we need to have something, there needs to be something to get at the end of it. There needs to be a big idea at the end of it. Otherwise, it hasn't been worth our time. And he says that that's pure capitalist thinking because it sort of plays into that idea of the kind of like the CV point scoring exercise or the kind of dinner party exchange of being able to have like a kind of uh, succinct, clear, pithy point that you can use to either make yourself look smart or to kind of like bolster, bolster your cultural capital. And I always find that a really fascinating idea. And it sort of plays into the same thing of Jeremy Corbyn saying, you can just enjoy something for its own sake without having to have necessarily understood every single thing about it, or kind of been able to distill like what the central arguments of, of it are. Yeah, and you can't always quantify what you've got out of something. I read Ulysses when I was, what, 21. I was working in a summer job at Gatwick Airport and I read it on the bus and in my lunch breaks. And I'm not sure I could tell you an awful lot about Ulysses, to be honest, like mm -hmm. barely anything. But I do know that, you know, on some level, I, I really enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed the formal experimentation. I thought it was funny. And it's had some sort of influence on, on me as a writer that I couldn't necessarily kind of quantify. But yeah, I mean, I agree with I agree with with you entirely. Maybe, you know, we could talk about the 
cultural landscape in which Corbyn was trying to put across his ideas on culture and particularly people around Corbyn. I'm thinking of the World Transform Festival organised by Momentum. I wonder if there's much to be said about the sort of difficulty of transmitting these ideas around culture in a media landscape that, you know, as we've just said, is populated by these squawking wankers who, you know, have a meltdown because Corbyn read Ulysses, you know. What were the challenges there? So, I mean, this, I think, was the sort of premise of my book. I was looking at, after Corbyn was um, elected leader of, the La- leader of the Labour Party in 2015, I was sort of looking at the landscape of what was happening, and it seemed like the sort of, like, material questions of the left-wing project were very well covered in terms of there being a lot of journalists writing about those issues um, and it, it, it felt like it was really well covered and there was lots of great work being done in that area but what struck me as being vitally important was the need to change the media landscape to ensure that those messages which were to all intents and purposes or I firmly believe the right messages and, and that were winning all of the sound logical arguments were landing with the right people because we live in a democracy and it, it's fine to have those ideas but if they're not resonating with the broad you know with the broad public then it's somewhat futile so over that kind of period of four years between uh, 2015 and when the book came out last year I was looking at the media um, I had done an MA at the University of Sussex and partly in the Netherlands as well looking at media bias in the outcome of various elections in different parts of the world. So it was something I was very interested in. I mean, I was already aware of Foucault, but the, the, the founding of that MA course was Foucault, and that kind of led me to other thinkers like uh, Bourdieu and Stuart Hall, etc. And so that's what I was really thinking about and trying to tussle with. The funny thing about the British media landscape is that it suffers from this really extreme exceptionalism where corruption, bias, etc. happen elsewhere. That doesn't happen here in the UK, supposedly. And we have a free press to all intents and purposes. Except, of course, when it's operating at a level of very extreme nepotism and old boy networks, that's really not the case at all. And so it's, it's not free at all. And what I started to find through a lot of my research as well is that that had become a lot worse after 2008 and the financial just because, as with most industries, it was forced to make cuts, which meant sort of pulling back on those quote-unquote outreach efforts to try and diversify and broaden the scope of voices and contributors um, within the media to include more people from minority ethnic backgrounds or working class backgrounds. Those efforts fell by the wayside. But also at the same time, the recruitment efforts were pulled back as well. So there's a lot more nepotism happening. There's a lot more people kind of just doing favours for their friends and their kids, etc. Which meant that actually by the time Corbynism arrived, the media was actually at one of its worst places in terms of diversity of opinion and representation of working class people than almost any point in recent memory. So in writing the book, I sort of looked at that and there was no way of looking at that that didn't go back to the 1990s and what happened under Tony Blair and the education reforms, etc. So that was the sort of starting point for it. So in kind of considering what my contribution could be to the Corbyn project, which had, you know, hundreds of really brilliant people behind it, was to, I thought at least, apply pressure on the media to be more aware of its own prejudices and biases, and also more self-conscious about them, and to realise that people had noticed and were noticing and were feeling very angry about it. So the book that I wrote was a sort of thesis on why we need a better media 
and a better kind of cultural and, and cultural industries as well, with a view to not allowing the media and the cultural industries to get away with the levels of unchecked prejudice, bias and nepotism that they've been operating under for such a long time. And unfortunately, I think that, that the tide is starting to turn on those things. It's been a long time coming. I think that we're seeing some really fascinating debate now uh, emerging within that space around who has the right to create and who has the right to report and to tell stories. Two writers who I think are really, really interesting on this are Bourdieu, obviously, in addition to the stuff around Habitus, he delivered a few lectures on media reporting and television in particular. And in those lectures, he talks about how journalists and people working in the cultural industries are reality makers. So they're not just presenting a view of reality to most people, but because of how high pressured our lives are, how little time we have, etc. Those little segments of news that we digest over dinner, maybe in the evening via the TV or the little snippets that we see via Twitter, etc, really are what build our worldview. And so who's telling them the lens through which they're being told the experiences that those people have do matter. And the other writer who I think is always been quite interesting on this and is kind of unlikely, not sort of canonical in terms of sort of left-wing theory, um, is Audre Lorde, who wrote some really powerful essays included in the compendium Sister Outsider around who gets to create. And she looks at the attendant costs that go with writing or painting or broadcasting or making music and how prohibitively expensive it is to most working class people. And I think that post 2008, that became even more exaggerated. So that it was basically impossible for people to lower middle or working class backgrounds to, to do that. Yeah. And in the book, you, yes, you talk a lot about this pulling up the bridge that happened, you know, after Thatcherism, the great age of cultural democracy in the 60s and 70s that, you know, Mark Fisher was writing about an awful lot. I often think about Mark's line about culture and Thatcherism, where he says that whenever you hear conversations about a cultural elite, look out for the re-entrenchment of a material elite, because this idea that people shouldn't have widespread free access to intelligent culture is always a kind of a cover for that culture being commodified for it being kept mm. behind paywalls of some sort or another and the re-entrenchment of people who can afford access to those things I mean the book obviously interested me with my background as a journalist mm. I was very interested in what you have to say about the media and I think we will keep talking about that mm. but you know, I was also very interested in what you say about pop culture and particularly, you know, pop culture that was being delivered through mass media infrastructure. So things like TV comedy comes up a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of people have forgotten that most of the 1990s was not the Blair years. It was the major years. Yeah. Um, you know, Blair only gets elected in uh, 1997. And the first half of the 1990s, there's quite a lot of more sort of class-based or quite subversive comedy that you can find on the BBC. I'm thinking of things like, you know, I've talked about this in another episode, but the the episode of Fry and Laurie, which includes a parody of It's a Wonderful Life, in which the guardian angel shows Rupert Murdoch what the world would be like without him, concludes it'd be much better and just shoves him off the bridge. Or, you know, Spitting Image, ending with a song called Kill an Estate Agent Today. But lots of other kind of, you know, class-based comedies that were quite clever and quite subtle even something like keeping 
appearances, which mm-hmm. you know was was something that tended to open open my eyes to a lot of the absurdities of of British class politics because my family, being quite solidly middle class, you know, quite liked the show and would watch it regularly. And you know, we could we could talk just about what's happened to British comedy since the nineteen nineties because a lot of those players are still present; they haven't gone away. Mm-hmm. And you know, have I got news for you in particular? has become this kind of example of how this smug satirical elite have become very entrenched and you know have I got news for you has become this place where politicians journalists and comedians all kind of meet and all share the same sort of ideas there's something about comedy that obviously relies on like shared understandings of something so there's a lot we could say about comedy with regards to say the media's construction of the left-wing anti-semitism scandal of 2018 to 19 and lots of jokes on have I got news for you that relied on just yes you know we've established now that Corbyn is personally anti-semitic and it's completely fair game to joke about that and the format doesn't allow you any space to challenge that precept because doing so would take like half an hour on its own to cut through all the kind of media bullshit so I'm interested in the place of comedy within this sort of media infrastructure how reactionary it's become and it's become an issue again recently you've probably seen this tweet that's doing the rounds where have I got news for you Twitter account posted something along the lines of I can't remember the exact wording of it but you know some bullshit about how the government sort of crack team of brilliant scientific advisors were being you know devastatingly contradicted by Dave 94217 from Wigan and you know this this tweet is being shared with some degree of gallows humor on Twitter now as an example of the sort of media elite being completely out of step with the public and that's largely to do with the class composition of that media elite I think and particularly that satirical elite sorry I talked for a long time there but I wonder if you'd like to maybe expand on what you say and steal as much as you can about comedy and a particular place that comedy plays within the sort of media cultural landscape yeah it was funny you talked about the keeping up appearances thing because that's a kind of long tradition in British comedy that I've always been quite into but I like I like it if you go back to like Tony Hancock his whole thing was sort of satirising the anxiety of the lower middle class in trying to kind of better themselves and distinguish themselves from their working class neighbours or peers. I think that's one of the most beautiful and brilliant aspects of the British comic tradition. I mean, I think, you know, it's even something you see in characters like, they might not be our favourite people now, but, you know, in Peep Show and in The Office, it's the sort of it's the sort of petty anxieties of the well, it's the petty anxieties of the petty bourgeois, which I think is one of my favourite things in British comedy and British humour. What I really liked about the nineties was that there was a possibility for people like Carolina Hearn to emerge, who is probably my favourite comedian of all time, and I, get, I even get a bit emotional talking about her. And things like Mrs. Merton and the Royal Family were favourites of mine growing up. Having looked at that and why that was able to happen, it wasn't really, I mean, it was partly to do with the sort of like political climate in that there was this, there was a growing anger towards the kind of Thatcher years. At the same time, there were bigger and bigger budgets in the media so that they were willing to invest in sort of unknown entities, which can be read as people from working class backgrounds because these weren't people that had traditionally always worked in the media. So. The media was it was taking greater risks. It was hiring and and, and creating space for people from outside the M25 and from working class communities, which 
both that and the kind of combined sort of class consciousness that was born out of people's anger towards Thatcher allowed for people like Carolina Hearn and Steve Coogan to emerge. Also, it was just, there is just a sort of like straightforward sort of timeline of things of just when a medium becomes commonplace is normally the point at which people become more subversive and experimental in their use of it. So I guess if TV had started to become really popular in like the kind of 1960s, it had been around for about 30 years, which meant that by the time of the 1990s, it was probably at its most sort of like subversive and experimental. Um, So you just, a combination of those factors allowed for some really fascinating TV programming. You just wouldn't get something like Brass Eye today. So I think all of those factors were at play but then the kind of flip side of it is that it, it did also seem to just kind of get slightly out of control. <laughs> we just ended up creating these like monsters like Chris Evans, who just ran amok and seemed to have like weight or uh, what's his name? Noel Edmonds. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Like these like, TV moguls who just ended up kind of like creating these really gung-ho TV uh, TV formats. Um, didn't someone die on... Noel Edmonds' show literally killed someone. Yeah. So the sort of flip side of that was that there's this, also this really dark and horrible side of it where you had like Noel Edmonds becoming a multi-multi-millionaire and apparently designing a car at some point as well. And Chris Evans buying a teenage girl, a Ferrari, to seduce her. Because it just kind of felt like this era of kind of decadence and experimentation and exuberance. So on the one hand, you had some great sort of like comic TV programming from that time, that kind of like darker side of it. And then as I kind of write in the book as well, it, it soured very, very quickly. And a lot of those people didn't kind of emerge looking particularly glorious at the end of it. But to me, as a young person, it was very exciting. It was exciting to see people from a similar kind of background to mine on screen, telling stories about the communities that I was familiar with and the experiences that I was having. And I naively assumed that that would just continue and that there would just be more and more access to people from my kind of background. And part of me wanted to be a part of that world. I, you know, I, I loved, I love TV. I love films. I love books. I like stories. I like humor. And I wanted to kind of be a part of that, except I graduated in 2008 and found a very, very prohibitive media environment that wasn't particularly welcoming to people from my kind of background. Um, so I guess all of that experience played into why I wanted to write the book as well. And then what we've seen after 2008, which I think has been really stark, has been this pivot to an unashamedly upper class tendency in TV programming. And so you see it in things like the countless TV shows that are about the royal family. I know there's The Crown and there's the parody one as well, which is, uh, I can't remember what it's called. There's another one that's like The Crown, but it's a, com- it's a comedy about the royal family. But then also things like um, Downton Abbey, Lots of programming about the the aristocracy, uh, fascination with the aristocracy at a time when, bearing in mind that this was all happening during an era of austerity, so when when working people were getting poorer and poorer. And also in the tradition of comedy as well, you see um, Jack Whitehall. I forget his name, the guy uh, from... I really don't like him, and so that's why I want to include him here. The guy from uh, Mock the Week with the blonde hair, the young guy. the um, uh, Russell Howard? Russell Howard. Russell Howard, who was saying that Johnson and Corbyn were the same during the election, yeah. Um. Yeah. And, like, really, really mediocre as well. I mean, really not natural talents or just sort of, you know, ascending the ranks and becoming some of our, like, you know, highest-paid, best-known comedians. And on top of it being wrong and on top of it being nepotistic and on top of it being sort of completely distortive, on top of it distorting the landscape of, you know, of Britain and what 
and how Britain is made up. It was also just like really crap. I mean, just really, really mediocre, stodgy, boring stuff that I wasn't enjoying consuming. So part of the reason why I wanted to write the book as well is that I was just bored. I was bored of what was being churned out. And I felt like we could do better. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've mentioned the TV shows like The Crown, Downton Abbey, and this parade of like terrible comedians called Russell. Um, But like, there was also at the same time, you were probably like me, like reading Mark Fisher in the 2010s. And, you know, Mark talking about programmes like Benefit Street, or what was it called? Was it Super Nanny? Where he talks about sort of magical volunteerism. But yeah, going in tandem with these these programs just kind of humanizing and glorifying the aristocracy, there was essentially, you know, in the first couple of years of the coalition government, a really quite savage cultural attack on the working class. You talked about 90s television for good and ill being out of control. And I think there's a sense that by by 2008, there is a real understanding of and perfection of the techniques of ideologically controlling the media to make sure that the kind of TV programmes of the 70s, 80s and 90s that we've been talking about didn't happen again. There's a good interview with Alexi Sale where he talks about the left making the same mistakes over and over again, the right only making the same mistakes once, and you know realising that letting a bunch of people like him on TV in the 80s was a mistake. And that by the time when they got back in after the new Labour period, they weren't going to make that mistake again. That is, again, something that I'm very interested in. and I've written quite a lot about and I write about in the book as well. So I talked about some of the more overt expressions of this tendency with the kind of programming about the aristocracy. But by reverse, there was this pernicious tendency in kind of reality programming. The most obvious examples being things like the Jeremy Kyle show, which has now been banned after somebody killed themselves. And that, I guess, is really literal. You can see very clearly where the exploitation is taking place. But it was happening on a quieter quieter level in lots of programming over the past sort of 15 years as well. So in all kind of reality TV formats, I think there is an exploitative mechanism at play. Love Island example is very interesting and, and very tragic and sad in that three people, I think, who three contestants of Love Island have killed themselves since being on the show. Now, obviously, the kind of causality is difficult to prove and explain. Oh, and actually, I also want to mention the Jade Goody documentary that was on last year. It was a four-parter. It was really interesting because what it looked at was, and, and what was quite interesting about it is Channel 4 were quite open about the mistakes they'd made in allowing a lot of it to be broadcast because what it really focused on was the financial imperative of wanting to go on reality TV. So if you're offering people £50,000 at the end of something, you're going to attract people who desperately need that money. So the mechanisms of exploitation are a little bit more convoluted and and complex in these programmes, but they're nevertheless still there. The entertainment value was derived from working class people with no media training appearing on TV for the first time. Then beyond that, there was, like you mentioned, the documentaries. And there are, again, the really extreme cases of Benefit Street. Remember the the My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding and those... Uh, really voyeuristic documentaries that Channel 4 broadcast for a long time. There's also been the kind of like educating series, the Educating Yorkshire and the Educating Essex series, which have been more recent. But then beyond that as well, I also think that there's something very harmful just in the lens of seemingly neutral documentaries. And in the book, I mention Louis Theroux, because while Louis Theroux doesn't take 
quite such a like polemical stance in his documentaries. He's very neutral and he takes a sort of back seat. There is still judgment implicit in the kind of editorial style, the subjects who are chosen, just and even even the choosing of the subjects. And often, or you know, the presenter is very middle class, but also often the producers and everybody else working on the on the production are also from that background, which means that what you end up with is a documentary that is looking down on people. Um, and so the lens, I think, or the kind of the class gaze is a real thing. And so even in more kind of like subtle instances, I still think it was having a damaging effect on the way that the working class were being portrayed and also on the kind of morale of people from those communities. You know, there have been lots of attempts to paper over the loss of morale for people in those communities due to post-industrial decline and neglect and the loss of political representation that came with the new Labour project reorienting itself quite explicitly towards the middle and upper classes. And, you know, there's been an attempt to paper over these problems with an increasingly overt use of like horrendously reactionary patriotism and nationalism. You know, again, this feels like it's intensified over the last 10 years leading into the Brexit vote and everything that came after. But, you know, you could look at something as ludicrous as the BBC's game show, I Love My Country, which ran for a series in, I think, 2013. But you could trace it back again to a sort of a rehabilitation of this kind of quote-unquote progressive patriotism in the 90s, uh, you know, in Britpop with the young British artists, and particularly this sort of facile concept of Cool Britannia mm. that was, you know, if not like a direct product of the new Labour project, then certainly some a wave that they were very happy, that Tony Blair in particular was very happy to ride. Yeah, I find the Cool Britannia phenomenon really fascinating and the image of Richard Branson in front of, or like using Kate Moss in the Union Jack flag. It just seemed like a perfect combination of neoliberal ideology, this sort of post-colonial British exceptionalism and just the kind of like the crass, brass artistic expression of the 90s kind of all, all coming together. But I find it very interesting that it coincided with very last vestiges of the British Empire coming to an end and the handing over of Hong Kong to China. And so the British Empire was no more. But what we could do, and this is what I talk about in the book, is that the kind of the PR gods reimagined Britain as the centre of all that was sort of like cool and progressive. And it was obviously very hollow and didn't ring true. And I like the trajectory from that to then what you saw in the sort of like early 2000s where there was this sort of like image of a sort of like washed up old ailing country in a lot of the kind of like mawkish I, I really don't like it but the kind of like mawkish cultural output of bands like the libertines etc I, I find that trajectory quite interesting but yeah the I think the seeds of the calls now for progressive patriotism kind of have their origins in that moment in new labor yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting you mentioned PR because, you know, PR to me feels like a place increasingly where politics and journalism have met and they, they met very strongly in the New Labour project. We talked quite interestingly at the top of the programme about how difficult it's been to read for a lot of people because the sort of ground has fallen away from underneath them. And that's certainly been my case. I'm finding it quite hard to read post-2019 election, the collapse of the Corbyn project, um, and then this coronavirus outbreak, finding it very hard to sort of think, well, what should I read? How am I directing my reading? Because a lot of my reading in the last couple of years was directed by things that were happening politically in, in the UK. 
And one of the things I did read immediately after the general election, thinking about how how the media kind of utterly fucked us over in that election in particular, but laid the groundwork to fuck us over for years and decades beforehand, particularly after the 2017 election. One book I did read was uh, Flat Earth News by Nick Davis. And, you know, he talks a lot about oligarchs taking over the media, the media becoming concentrated in a smaller and smaller number of hands, uh, notably Rupert Murdoch's. And, you know, he talks about the effects of the whopping strikes during the Thatcher period, the print union strikes and the victory of the government and of, you know, Murdoch over the unions, but also talks about journalism becoming increasingly dominated by PR due to budget cuts. And in particular, you know, Alistair Campbell's exploitation of this with the Observer in the early 2000s, and in particular in getting them to support the Iraq war. So I think the sort of, you know, the place of PR in politics and journalism is especially interesting. And something else you touched on there, which is, you know, early 2000s culture, again, I think a bit like the early 90s, it's been largely sort of forgotten, or maybe even memory hold now, because people are so ashamed of it. You know, I really remember feeling this very strong sense in the early 2000s, of how nasty and resentful, like British culture were coming, not so much politics, but culture, although I think it was in politics as well. You know, you get Blair's Labour Party turning towards this more aggressive, like anti-immigrant stance. Of course, like the war on terror is happening. Michael Howard's conservatives uh, indulge in an awful lot of dog whistle racism. Uh, so do certain Labour campaigns, actually. But, you know, this, this sort of talking about culture as a way of masking prejudices and, you know, in the wave of Islamophobia in the early 2000s, you often heard people say, like, Islam isn't a race. They've just got a uniquely awful culture that we need to talk about incessantly. But you also found this with regards to class. I mean, you know, I think of the early 90s and I think of the ubiquity of the term chavs. I think of Little Britain, you know, at least one of whom was, I think, privately educated at Rygate Grammar School. It's quite near me. And I think of, you know, like the Vicky Pollard character and others in Little Britain and the sort of sneering contempt for the working classes. I think of, you know, some of the entries on the old like Crap Towns website that I used to read at work. Quite a sort of nasty tone to a lot of like early 2000s game shows. I'm thinking of things like The Weakest Link of the reality TV programs that you talk about. And this real hatred of the working classes that really wasn't properly called out, I don't think, until, um, you know, Owen Jones published Chavs in the early 2010s. And I wonder if you feel if there's been, you know, any sort of shift away from that kind of discourse or whether that discourse just kind of changed or evolved and maybe is still as bad, but just slightly different. Yeah, Chavs had a really important impact on me when I first read it. It came at a time when I felt quite disenfranchised from formal politics and I was still voting Labour, but by default more than anything. And I think it did invaluable work. I coined a term which I quite like and keep using of the sort of like stagecraft of neoliberalism and this is something that I'm very interested in because I think that a lot of a lot of the policies that Thatcher enacted were around enabling like reality what well, is obviously what Mark Fisher talks about but allow, allowing sort of like reality to be supplanted with market logic and what that I think prevented a lot of people from being able to see was how the treatment of them and their communities was political and how the way that certain communities were being discussed in the, in the media, etc., was was all political. And I think that Owen Jones did a really invaluable thing in sort of like shattering that malaise. I lived in a working class community. I was around people who would refer to themselves as chaps. 
because it had just been completely absorbed into the way that we conceived of people and and at the same time class consciousness had been completely eroded it didn't exist people didn't think of themselves as being working class people who exist in a sort of working class tradition we had all conceived of ourselves in a completely individualistic way and internalized a lot of the shame that had been imposed by the the logic of neoliberalism and social mobility so i think owen jones did an absolutely invaluable job in writing that book i think if it did anything in terms like sorry it did a lot but I think it went a long way to kind of reawakening class consciousness and allowing people like me and I'm sure many, many, many others to realise the politics of the way of their kind of self-image and the way that they were treated in the world. I think that's really important. I think what it did at the other end in terms of how those people are received by the establishment and those people who are members of the dominant class and who have a lot of power is that they knew they ended up, they knew that they had to kind of pay lip service to it so they knew they couldn't get away with using terms like chav anymore and they knew they couldn't be explicitly prejudicial towards people from low-income backgrounds but i don't know and this is always the this is always the challenge is when you raise these points there's always the issue of people saying okay we understand and then kind of adapting in terms of the language they use and the way that they present things but essentially, it's still, I still think that a lot of obviously, I mean, it's only one book, of course, it can't do this on its own. But a lot of those kind of hierarchies were obviously still intact and very stubborn. And the closest we got to sort of challenging them in any kind of real way was obviously through Corbynism. But I think that language, back to the point about Bourdieu and how the media acts to create reality, I think language is very, very important. I think that um, by eradicating the word chavs from the public dialogue it also did a lot to ensure that those communities couldn't be sort of humiliated yeah i mean it's it's interesting to bring it back to the corbyn project and you know i guess we're kind of circling back around to where we started our conversation with the 2019 election which basically ended up being this right-wing culture war approach to politics versus a sort of left-wing material offer uh, that looks likely to be watered down by Sir Keir Starmer QC and I think sort of gradually abandoned altogether as the sort of faction of politics that just have this sort of misremembered version of the 1990s which they're desperately trying to reassert take back control of um of the Labour Party I mean something interesting that just springs to mind from what you've just said about class consciousness you know after the election I read everything basically my way of dealing with my grief and and sorrow about the destruction of this project that you know we had all invested a lot of energy and emotion into was to just read everything and there was an interesting piece doing the rounds about people who'd gone canvassing and i think bridge end in wales and talked about somebody who was doing you know some sort of zero hours gig gig economy type job who was quite kind to them and sort of said oh look you know the people at number 36 have gone out so don't bother knocking there you know told them which doors to knock on and things and so the group asked this woman what she did for a living and she said she had three zero hours jobs for companies like Deliveroo and they said to her like Labour want to get rid of zero hours contracts and have more stable and secure work for you and someone was like well I don't see it as being exploited I see myself as an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. and it got me thinking about you know the Ken Loach film Sorry We Missed You which I'd seen in the run-up to the election, which dealt with exactly this. And there's a very striking scene in Sorry We Missed You, where Ricky, I think he's called the central character, goes to his boss and says, look, I can't do this job in the way it's structured. And the boss, you know, launches into this, like, purely ideological, very Thatcherite speech about being an entrepreneur and, you know, having the 
necessary personal qualities to make this this job work and I thought about the gulf between people like me who you know watch films like this and you know I cried more than once during that film and the people actually doing these jobs um and of course you know in the 70s 80s 90s a film like that would have been on tv at a time when people actually got to see it and would be kind of talked about I mean I'm going off on a bit of a tangent because I do want to sort of conclude our conversation by talking about you know the the way that the political tensions of the 2010s, sort of post-2008, did come down to this sort of one side focusing on this material offer and the other side focusing on this culture war and the culture war approach winning out in a way that was really unpleasant to live through. I know yeah. you're you're responding to this in, in your work, in your next work, so I wonder if we could just maybe conclude by talking about that. I have a very complicated standpoint on the whole material versus culture war argument I 100% understand why we ought not to be dragged into any kind of cultural being confected by the right I 100% agree I think it would you know I think it's a complete decoy but and you know regrettably it is working the fact of the matter is and this is something I I think was unfortunately I don't think it was missing from the Corbyn project I think that the Corbyn project was just too nascent because going back to the point about this kind of like stagecraft of neoliberal neoliberalism to land the messages that we needed to land with people we needed there needed to be more sort of unpicking of this what i'm going to term at the moment as cultural capitalism and i'll kind of elaborate on that in a moment which i just think i just think the corbyn project was was almost too nascent to be able to to do that it would take more than 5 years in opposition to be able to affect that change. And this is what this is something that I am quite serious about trying to challenge and, and overcome, is despite the fact that it's very complicated and we might not want to address it, and despite the fact that it is extraneous to material circumstances and therefore shouldn't have to concern the left-wing project, I do fundamentally believe that cultural capital as an idea exists in people's minds and it alienates people and it makes people feel disenfranchised. And I think it's an intentional byproduct of neoliberalism. And I think that it was played out over the last five years, but particularly in the last election campaign, in what I experienced when I was on the doorstep, which is people who might be more materially wealthy than me, people who might have more in terms of assets, they probably owned their houses, they had cars on the driveway, etc. But I would present to them as an elite. And it's wrong because it is completely divorced from material reality. It's, it's, distort, it's a distortion. But that distortion exists. And we have, to, we have to tackle it. And at the root of it is a question of cultural capital and the way that cultural capital is exerted and the way that it is manifest in the way that we present in the world. So I understand why the left would want to avoid questions of culture and particularly these cultural wars that are being confected by the right, and I completely agree. But I do think that we are not going to be successful if we don't engage with the distorting factor of cultural capital and the way that it distorts notions of class, status and hierarchies. Um, and I think this is, this is what was behind the media's success in being able to kind of create an everyman of Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, Alan Sugar, but then turn someone like me who's just got a university degree and not much else as a kind of like an elite and an oppressor, somebody who is there to kind of like humiliate you and doesn't understand what your needs are. So that's 
something that I'm very, very interested in. I think it was something that thinkers like Bourdieu and Stuart Hall were very, very aware of, and that's what they were trying to tackle through their work. I think it has been somewhat neglected in recent years for the reason that I think the left is just very, very scared of playing into these culture wars. But I don't think that we're going to be successful without addressing some of these issues. What happens to the material project is obviously a huge concern, and I don't know. I think I don't think that Keir Starmer will see a general election. I may be wrong. My hope is that you know on the next ballot we have a strong left wing candidate who we can elect again, and that this time round the project will be taking place against a kind of media and cultural back, cultural backdrop that is more amenable to left wing ideas. And we can hope actually that in instances like this terrible tragic moment that we're living through and the subsequent economic decline that we're going to experience that there will be more consensus around left-wing ideas and so the fight might not be as tough as it has been in the past we might be able to persuade people of this more more effectively we hadn't recovered fully from 2008 and now we're going to go into another recession potentially we've also you know experienced a huge amount of loss over the last few months and so i think that there really might be a sort of like mainstream turning of the tide towards a lot of these ideas and ideas like universal basic income, etc. So my hope is that in, that that can be matched with a kind of cultural landscape that is more amenable to these ideas by all of us doing the hard work of actually grappling with this idea of cultural capital and how it plays out. Because it is something that, that I see in my exchanges with my own family. Um, but it's also something that I saw in the exchanges I was having on the doorstep, despite me, you know, I went to Birmingham, which is where I grew up and had to sort of admit that there was something, there was something elitist in this mechanism of me driving to Birmingham to go and persuade these people whose community I had abandoned to go to university and to pursue a career in journalism, now coming back and telling them they should vote a certain way. And as difficult as that is for me to swallow and to understand, I think it's something that all of us could do more to kind of read about and be more sensitive to in the next few years. And, and hopefully, you know, you know, in the lead up to the next general election, where we will hopefully have more success. All of which is to say that that doesn't undermine the noble intentions that people had in doing all of those things. And, you know, all of us that went out and canvassed and dedicated a huge amount of our time to doing those things. We were absolutely right to do so. I would do so again in a heartbeat. But I do just think that we could perhaps, in this time of reflection after the last general election, consider how those subtle and often very difficult to quantify and measure mechanisms of cultural and social capital play out in our exchanges and the way that our message is delivered. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, the one thing we do have in the aftermath of the last general election is time and time to reflect and time to reconsider our strategy and hopefully time to do the the cultural work of supporting a left-wing project, as you say. I think we'll leave it there for today. So, um, Natalie, just to say thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Listeners, we will have more sessions coming up soon with uh, Travis Alabanza and the Lithuanian filmmaker Dimantis Narkovicheus and uh, have a couple of other shows in the pipeline yet, which I don't want to jinx, but should be good. You can find us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212. You can find me on Twitter at Zinoviev Letter. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on SoundCloud at sweet-212. Subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash sweet 212. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. Take care. Goodbye.